I would ask you this morning to turn to Psalm 8. Back in November, we looked at a couple of psalms, and I thought it might be good to continue in the Psalter, God's songbook at the middle of our scriptures. But as we think about Advent, as we prepare for the celebration of the incarnation, the the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, I thought it might be good for us to spend some time looking at not just messianic psalms, psalms that speak prophetically of Christ, but particularly a few psalms that speak prophetically of his incarnation. One's psalms that are quoted in the New Testament as having been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ in his incarnation. And so one of those psalms, one of my favorites, is Psalm 8. So we'll turn there, we'll read the entire psalm this morning. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Last week I came across the title of an editorial in the Washington Post that caught my eye. Here's what the title of the editorial said. Humanity is cosmically special. Here's how we know. So I was intrigued by that title to dig into the the editorial, and it was found out it was written by a Dr. Howard Smith, who is an astrophysicist at Harvard University and also former chair of the astronomy department at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. And Dr. Smith also happens to be a traditional observant Jew, and so he is coming from an Old Testament perspective and worldview. And here's how he begins the article. There was a time back when astronomy put Earth at the center of the universe that we thought we were special. But after Copernicus kicked Earth off its pedestal, we decided we were cosmically inconsequential partly because the universe is vast and about the same everywhere. Astronomer Carl Sagan put it this way, we find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star. Stephen Hawking was even blunter. The human race is just a chemical scum on a moderately sized planet. Or, if you've seen the new movie out in theaters, as Dr. Strange puts it, we're just a tiny speck in an indifferent universe. 
However, as the editorial goes on, Dr. Smith says that scientific discoveries in the last 50 years have challenged that worldview. He says, we're discovering that the universe, quote, the universe, far from being a collection of random accidents, appears to be stupendously perfect and fine-tuned for life. He goes on in the, in the editorial to talk about how the factors that have caused the earth to come into existence and for life to appear on it, not just life, but self-aware life, intelligent life, that those factors are so mathematically rare and unlikely that so many, and he talks about how so many scientists, a way of coping with that in their own thinking and worldview, they've come up with the theory of the multiverse. In other words, this universe is only one of an infinite number of universes, and by that convenient uh, mental trick, they can come up with mathematical odds that would allow for this fine-tuned universe and this planet with self-aware, intelligent life on it to actually have possibly come into existence by some happy accident. But Dr. Smith goes on to say a much more reasonable interpretation would say otherwise. And he actually quotes a non-creationist astrophysicist named Dr. Fred Hoyle from Cambridge University. Dr. Hoyle says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The number The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. What this editorial points us to is that really the first and most foundational question that you need to answer in your life, the one that will set the foundation for your worldview, your philosophy, your religious views, and your moral views, the most basic question every human being has to ask themselves is this question. Is there a creator? Am I a created being? Your answer to that question dramatically affects every other belief and every other moral standard that you take, every decision that you make in life. I honestly have a hard time understanding satisfied agnostics. I mean, how can you treat that foundational question to life as though it doesn't really matter or you don't care or you're indifferent to the answer? It's okay to be an unsatisfied agnostic if you're still searching, if you're still looking, because there's still a lot of people out there in that category. Are we just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet? Is that really who we are? Well, Psalm 8 gives the definitive answer from the perspective of God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Psalm 8 is saying if you're a human being, you are special. You're very special, more special than you realize. Now, I hear that all the time out there in the world around me, that 
We are to really drive that message home to our children. Make sure that they understand every day they're special. And we tell them, you're very, very special. And yet, we teach them in this culture a worldview that totally militates against that idea. That really does lead to the rational conclusion that you are chemical scum on a moderately sized planet in a vast universe. And really, isn't that what Christmas, the, really the message of Christmas is to our children, is that they're special. Not special because we load them with a bunch of presents. They're special because of what Psalm 8 tells us about who they are. Psalm 8 begins by contemplating God's glory. He's going to get to man's glory, but he begins by contemplating God's glory. And that reminds me of John Calvin's Institutes. The most well-known writing of John Calvin was the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And I've always been fascinated by how he begins that great religious document. He says, nearly all wisdom we possess, and that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But then he goes on for several pages wrestling with, well, which should we study first? Should we study who God is or should we study who we are? And he debates about which because he feels that studying one or the other will lead to the other. But he finally comes around to the conclusion we should start with the glory of God. And so David does the same thing here in Psalm 8. He reflects upon the majesty of our creator. Look at verse 1. It's an outburst. It's an emotional outburst. It should not be read dispassionately. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's overcome with a spirit of humility and praise before this God. God's name, he says, is majestic. The name of God. When the scriptures talk about the name of God, we don't put that much stock in our names. We treat our names as though they're not that big of a deal. But in scripture, when it talks about God's name, what it means is the sum total of all that God has revealed us about himself. So that's an awfully big subject. God's name is the sum total of all that he has revealed about himself, both in his creation and in his word. And David says, your name, O Lord, this sum total of everything you've told us about yourself, it's majestic in all the earth. As David would say later in Psalm 139, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. The word majestic means, it comes from a Hebrew root word that means to expand. And so the other word, in other words, the word majestic here, the root idea is that God's majesty is so wide, so deep, so high, so beyond my comprehension. And so the English translations use words like great or glorious or excellent. God is so majestic. David mentions two places that reveal God's majesty and glory to us. He says that God's name is majestic in all the earth. And so we are to see the majesty, the power, the creativity, the love, the providence. We are to see all these things in what he has made in the earth. The animals, the flowers, the other plants, the trees, the forests, the mountains, the rivers, the seas. In all the earth we can see how vast is God's glory and how majestic it is. But then he goes on to say that your majesty 
is above the heavens. I really challenge you to every so often go outside of State College. Get away from the street lights. Get away from the man-made lights in your living room, in your office, in your study. You don't have to go very far. When I lived in the Philadelphia suburbs, you had to drive 45 minutes to get away from man-made light. But here you can drive a mile or two out of town and find yourself in the middle of a meadow or a farmer's field and go out there on a clear night and look like David looked here in Psalm 8 at the majesty of God revealed in the heavens. The Jews spoke of three heavens. The first heaven was what we would call the atmosphere, where the clouds and the birds are. The second heavens was what we would call outer space, where the sun, moon, and stars are. That place that scientists now tell us is about 93 billion light years across, as far as we can determine it at this point in history. But the third heavens, according to Jewish thought, and you see this reflected in scripture, is where God and his angels dwell in infinite glory. That's, you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a vision he had where he was taken into this third heaven, into the very presence of God, the throne room of God. Think about that, that we are overwhelmed with the revelation of God's majesty and what he's created on the earth. And we're even more overwhelmed when we look to his clear night sky and see his majesty portrayed in this first heavens and in the second heavens. But David says his glory and his majesty are above all the heavens. And what he's saying there is similar to what King Solomon said when he was instructed to build this little temple to be a place that represented God dwelling with his people in grace. And remember when the temple was finished, he said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory Above the heavens. But then notice what he does in verse 2. David shifts the focus, not just from the vastness of the universe to the planet Earth, which he certainly does, this tiny little planet that's lost in this vastness of the universe. He shifts the focus to the, one of the tiniest creatures on this tiny planet. He says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Now, language might be a little difficult there, but it's profound what he's saying. He's saying that the gibberish, the early vocalizations of our youngest children, our infants and our babies, that that in and of itself is enough to quiet those who oppose God. That the glory and majesty of God that is reflected even in the speech of an infant is enough to stop the mouths of the accusers and enemies of God. He's reveling in the majesty of God that's in a very small baby. Last week I had the privilege of being able to spend some significant time with my daughter's babies and my son's babies 
And it's been a long time since I spent time with babies, and I've realized, first of all, I'm glad that the Lord has brought me past that stage of life. I can't, couldn't handle it like my sons and daughters do at this point. But I love them, and I was so, it was kind of great after having raised children to look at babies again and see them with fresh eyes, to see what a testimony they are to the glory of God. And that's really what David is saying here. He's saying that as vast and glorious as God's revelation is in the heavens and on earth, there's something in humanity. There's something even in the smallest baby that is a far greater revelation of who God is than, any, than all of that. And so that's why he turns his focus to, to man, to humans, to human beings like you and me when he gets to the next verse. And there in verses 3 and 4, he describes the original majesty of man. David looks up at the moon and the stars, and even with his limited scientific knowledge and technology in that ancient day, still looking up to the heavens makes him feel very, very, very small, just as it does Stephen Hawking. Makes him feel like the chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. And so he says, what is man in light of all of this? But then he immediately says what God has revealed to him to be true. Is that man is special. And he says that man is special for two reasons. He says, first of all, because God is mindful of him. All he's saying there is that God notices him. And that is all the more amazing in this day when we know how big the universe is. 93 billion light years across. How amazing is it that God even notices the intelligent life that he placed on this small planet. And David is astounded at that. Reminds me of the great pastor and writer and hymn writer, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He said that in his process of coming to know Christ, he said that the first thing he feared was not the punishment of a just God. The first thing he feared was being overlooked by God, of not being noticed by God. But David says, no, this God who created all of this notices each one of us. He's mindful of us. But he goes on to say that he does much more than just notice human beings. He says, you care for man. The original Hebrew word is to visit. And he doesn't mean like dropping by for a minute. He means to come and dwell with. How astounding is that? That the God, the majestic God of the universe, not only notices man, but he comes to visit him. He comes to oversee him. The word means to oversee, to care for to nurture, to walk with in the garden. The rest of this psalm is really David's reflection on what God's word teaches us in Genesis 1 and 2. David is talking about the glory of man as something that God has bestowed upon him. We have glory in the same way that the Sistine Chapel is glorious. The Sistine Chapel is glorious to look at, but its glory is derived from its creator, Michelangelo. And so we are 
in our original state, as God created us, we were majestic because we reflected the glory of our Creator. You see, we talked about in the Sunday school class, if you were here with us for that, we talked about how the church had to come to terms with the fact that in terms of space, in terms of scientific study, the earth is not the center of the universe. But I do never, I never hesitate to say that the Bible teaches a geocentric view of the earth because not in terms of space and science, but in terms of theology, in terms of a worldview. This is the focus of God. This is where God has visited. This is where God has placed men and women and children that are made in his image. And the rest of the universe is created for the benefit of the inhabitants here on this focal point of God's universe. That's what David is saying. And man, man, woman, and child, human beings, mankind is the peace de resistance of his creation. I worked hard on that all week. He is the crowning point of all of God's creation. He is the tour de force, the masterpiece of creation as God originally intended. God breathed into the nostrils of this creature and he became a living being. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's why we're special. In chapter 2 of Genesis, you ever wonder why God gave us two accounts of the creation? Genesis 1 and 2, like we have four Gospels that give the account of the life of Christ. We have two accounts of creation. One focuses on how we are the crown and the peyes de resistance of creation. If I'm going to practice all week, I'm going to say at least twice. If, (laughs) If that's the purpose of Genesis 1, then the purpose of Genesis 2 is to say that this God who created us has visited us. This God has come to walk with us in the garden, to be in intimate personal relationship with us. That's what Genesis 2 is about. And that blows David's mind, and I hope it blows your mind this morning. We are made in the image of God. We are made to reflect God's glory. And even though we are going to talk in a moment about the fall, There is still much of the glory of God reflected in this human being that he has created. It's the basis for much of the morality of Scripture from that point on. Let me give you one example. Over in James chapter 3, James addresses the fact that because of sin and because of the fall, we are brutal to each other with our tongues. We cut each other up with our tongues. We devastate each other with our words. And he addresses it in terms of God's original intent in creation. Listen to what he says in James chapter 3. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Because that was not God's intent. We are to treat each other as image bearers. And that has profound effect on all of your views and all of your actions. I was disturbed in this most recent election, and I'm sorry, I'm going to make one more reference to this recent election. 
I was disturbed by the fact that my Christian brothers and sisters were ending up on two sides of a debate. On one side, on the right side, we had Christians that all they cared about was standing for the image of God in the unborn child, rightly so, and being anti-abortion. And then the other side, we had people that were working against each other within the church who would say, no, the most important issue is that we respect the image of God in each other and be anti-racism. And I listened to both of my brothers and sisters arguing with each other and taking sides, and I'm like, why aren't we both if we really believe what the scriptures teach? We should be equally anti-racist and equally anti-abortion because of what the scriptures tell us about man's being born and being created in the image of God. And as though the honor and glory of being made in God's image and being cared for by him wasn't enough, the creator bestowed upon man in the Garden of Eden a royal dignity. Did you pick up on that? In verses 5 to 8, he says, You have crowned him. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And there he goes on to list the beasts and the birds and the fish. This is in theology, we call this the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate. That God, having created this man as a special, unique, image-bearing creature, he gives him the royal dignity of saying, I am placing you on the throne over this planet. You are to work this garden. You are to manage this garden. You are to be a steward under my authority, to rule under my authority. And again, I look at the political spectrum and I'm saying, it's, it's, it's just, it tears my heart out when I recognize the fact that the loudest voices in our culture promoting what we call environmentalist causes is coming from people who are either materialist in their worldview or come from some pantheist or, or New Age or Eastern religious perspective. Why are not the loudest voices on the issues of environmentalism coming from Christians who believe in biblical stewardship? Because biblical stewardship is the way that our creator and the earth's creator intended for this planet to be managed. And if the earth were managed the way God intended it, it would be a gloriously beautiful garden. And we would treat all of the earth and all other kinds of life with great respect and with great wisdom. Jesus' parables were often about an owner leaving his home and his fields and his vineyards and his possessions under the care of servants. And they were to be stewards of his property, to use it and to promote it and to increase it and to be accountable when he returns for how they served. And that's the view of how we are to use this creation. We don't worship creation. We worship the creator by faithful stewardship in his name. Thomas Aquinas pointed out that man is, in a sense, midway between the angels and the animals. That angels are only spirit and animals are only flesh. But man is uniquely both spirit and body. Spirit and 
soul, and body. That, 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 that's, that spirit and soul are the same thing. That spiritual nature we have in likeness to the heavenly beings. And yet we have a body that is like the flesh of the creatures of this earth. And so that's interesting. And you look at what David says. He says something slightly different than that. He says that we are made a little lower than the heavenly beings. So whereas Aquinas said we're kind of midway between angels and animals, David is saying, no, we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings. He did not say we were made a little higher than the animals. And I think there's a significant difference there. I think it speaks to orientation, that we are to be seekers of the face of God. We are to be seeking to reflect the image of God in our thoughts and words and deeds. We are made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now, if you have footnotes there or you've ever studied the passage, the word there in the original Hebrew is actually Elohim, and you'll probably recognize that as the name for God. And commentators wrestle with, did David mean to say we're made a little lower than God, or did he mean to say that we're made a little lower than angels? Because Elohim in the Old Testament is used both ways. I couldn't decide after a lot of study, which David really intended. I don't think we can be entirely sure, but I don't think it really matters because his point is still valid. Is that we are made in the image of God, lower than God, lower in our status than the angels temporarily, although keep in mind angels are servants of ours. And there's a sense in which we are the ones who will reign forever with God. But... We are made a little lower because we are to be seeking the face of God. We are to have a heavenward orientation. And that makes us special. But as you know, after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3. And the first man and the first woman rejected their creator, rebelled against him considered his truth a lie and made themselves, put themselves in the place of God and made themselves the center of their own existence and sought to meet their needs through sin. And isn't that, in light of what we've just said about the majesty of man made in the image of God, isn't that really the horror of sin? That we would have the audacity to reject the creator who gave us his glory, who gave us our existence and gave us his glory and gave us this exalted status. We rejected him, turned our back on him, we rebelled against him and worshipped and served the creature instead of the creator and exchanged God's truth for a lie. And the result is that our sins have separated us from our God and have placed us under his just wrath And the world, instead of being this beautiful, orderly, God-glorifying garden, although there are certainly vestiges of it still there, here and there, it is filled with chaos and death and corruption. And it's out of control. And instead of reigning over the earth, mankind lives in fear Fear of the creation, fear of natural disaster, fear of one another, and ultimately fear of death. Instead of having an orientation towards seeking the face of God, we've turned our back on him and we've turned our face to the earth 
And instead of becoming more godly, we are working hard to become more beastly. We would rather see ourselves as having evolved by chance from a fallen material world than see ourselves as being created uniquely in the image of God. Now I ask myself, why would you ever want to believe that? Why would you rather see yourself as chemical scum on a tiny planet than seeing yourself as being made in the image of God and giving a royal status in his sight? Why would you want that? The only reason I can think of is that you desperately want to be free from his authority. Desperately want to live a beastly life in your spiritual blindness and death. Psalm 8 gives us a picture of our original majesty as God granted it to us when he created us. But David, even though he doesn't make it explicit here, we know from the rest of Scripture he had in mind a promise that God had given to his sinful people that one day a Messiah would come. One day a man of some type would come that would deliver his people, a suffering servant that would bring redemption. There would be a restorer to our majesty. It's interesting if you look it up. Psalm 8 is quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament. In each case, the New Testament writer applies it to Jesus Christ, not to fallen man. He applies it to Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ fulfilled what this psalm is talking about. And one of the clearest passages, and one of the most helpful passages to our study this morning, is found in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read to you from verse 6 to 9, and then verses 14 and 15. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He's quoting Psalm 8. Listen to how he applies it. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing under his, outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What an amazing statement he's made. First of all, he's saying that the eternal Son of God added to his divine nature a human nature and came and lived among us and fulfilled that majestic view of human nature that is portrayed in Psalm 8. Jesus Christ is the one who has come and been the Psalm 8 man perfectly reflecting the image and will of God in every thought, word, and deed. But why did he do that? Not to give us an example to live by, because we can't live by that example. We've proven that over and over. He came, the writer of Hebrews says, to die. To taste death for all of us who trust in him. Verses 14 and 15. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became man, dwelt among us, lived a perfect life, and then went to the cross and bore the wrath of God that all our sins deserved. He was judged in our place. He was the Lamb of God whose blood takes away the sin of the world. He became our Redeemer because God rewarded him for his faithfulness and raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death, brought him to his right hand to reign over all things where he is today. And he offers to us the gift of forgiveness and his perfect righteousness, which is received by faith alone. And that begins the process of restoring our dignity, our majesty. You know, if you people were to suddenly become what you're going to be in the not-so-distant future, and I was still in the state that I am, I would fall on the ground and cover my face before your glory. You are very, very special. That's the message of Psalm 8. William Plummer makes this comment. He says, while the, for while the glory of human nature has been so deteriorated through the fall that it is only seen in small fragments, it appears anew in Christ in full splendor. And the beauty of the gospel is, is that that original image, that majestic image of God that we lost when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it is fully restored to us by faith in Christ. Paul describes the effects of Christ's death and resurrection in Philippians 3. And I want you to listen to this. I'm sure you know this passage. But I want you to listen to it in light of what we've been saying. And see how Paul is applying this principle to the effect of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. He says, brothers, join in, in imitating me, becoming more godly, seeking the face of God and seeking to become like God. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told, often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Hear what he's saying? Apart from the grace of God, we become beastly. Our God is our belly, our glory is in our shame, and our mind is on earthly things. But, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Psalm 8 fulfilled in him and ultimately in us. Are we just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet? Or are we made a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned with glory and honor? That's a decision we all have to decide, and the answer is found in Christ. James Montgomery Boyce 
in his sermon on this passage, says, We will never understand human beings unless we see them as God's creatures and recognize that they have special responsibilities to their creator. And then let me close with the final words of that editorial that I began with, the editorial written by the astrophysicist Howard Smith. This is what he says. Humanity isn't mediocre at all. It seems we might even serve some cosmic role. Humanity and our home planet Earth are rare and cosmically precious. And may we act accordingly. That's what David is saying. Act accordingly to what Psalm 8 has revealed to us about who we originally are and who we will be in Christ. This Christmas season, let's be encouraged by the hope of the restoration of our royal dignity in Christ. That's why he came. Let's pray. Father, We're just so thankful as we think about the Christmas season. We're so thankful for the greatest gift, the gift of salvation to us. We did not seek it. Matter of fact, we, in our nature, ridiculed it, turned our back on it, wanted nothing to do with it. But you came to us. You, through your Son, took on human nature. And you are a great and faithful high priest, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the blood you shed that reconciles us to God and enables us to fulfill our destiny to become godly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.